Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. This week on the Bain Free Radio Hour, more Filk. We continue our discussion with members of the music community within science fiction and fantasy fandom. Plus, part three of our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Glad you're here with us. I'm contributing editor Gray Reinhardt, once again sitting in for Bain editor Tony Daniel. In this podcast, we feature part two of our roundtable discussion with several science fiction and fantasy musicians in the Filk community. Perry Bruns, Blind Lemming Chiffon, Sally and Barry Childs Helton, Lizzie Crow and Eric Coleman, and Tom Smith. And we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, as read by Tristan Morris. But first... This podcast is being scheduled for release on the 26th of June, 2015. What was going on this week in history? According to the Fount of All Knowledge, Wikipedia, this week in 1978, Pluto's moon, Charon, was discovered, and in 2006, two of its other moons, Nix and Hydra, were officially named. The bit about Charon is a nifty coincidence, since earlier this week, NASA released the first color-moving images of Pluto and Charon, courtesy of the New Horizons space probe. That's cool, but when it comes to genre history, this week is packed. For instance, two prominent science fiction and fantasy movie and television writer-director-producers were born this week. First, Joss Whedon, with whom your humble host shares a birthday, was born this week in 1964. He is no doubt familiar to our listeners as the mind behind such television productions as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Firefly, Dollhouse, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., 
and such long-form productions as Toy Story, which he co-wrote, Serenity, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, The Cabin in the Woods, and the two Avengers movies. Next, J.J. Abrams was born this week in 1966. His credits include Forever Young, Armageddon, Cloverfield, the long-running TV series Lost, and the two Star Trek reboot movies. He also directed the forthcoming Star Wars sequel, The Force Awakens, due out later this year. Several important science fiction and fantasy authors were born this week in history as well. In 1903, for example, the dystopian author Eric Arthur Blair was born. You probably know his pen name better, George Orwell, whose novel 1984, published in 1949, was a landmark in terms of dystopian fiction. In fact, in the real year 1984, his novel was honored, along with Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, as a Prometheus Award Hall of Fame inductee. And in 2011, he was again a Prometheus Award Hall of Fame recipient for his 1945 novella, Animal Farm. This week in 1915, English astronomer Fred Hoyle was born. His best-known scientific accomplishment was developing the theory of stellar nucleosynthesis, but he also wrote science fiction, beginning with the novel The Black Cloud in 1957. He wrote a number of novels with his son, Jeffrey Hoyle. An American author known more for historical fiction than science fiction, Michael Sciarra, was born this week in 1928, and I certainly hope I pronounced his name correctly. He published over two dozen science fiction stories, including All the Way Back, which was part of the 2005 Bain Books anthology The World Turned Upside Down, edited by Eric Flint, Jim Bain, and David Drake. Shiara's most famous work, The Killer Angels, about the Battle of Gettysburg, won the 1975 Pulitzer Prize for fiction. This week in 1941, British science fiction author James P. Hogan was born. According to Wikipedia, he wrote his 1977 novel, Inherit the Stars, to win an office bet. It was his first novel, and in your host's opinion, it was fantastic. In 1979, Hogan was a finalist for the Campbell Award for Best New Writer, and he won two Prometheus Awards, in 1983 for Voyage from Yesteryear, and in 1993 for The Multiplex Man. In 1997, he won the Southern Fandom Confederation's Phoenix Award, a Lifetime Achievement Award for a Science Fiction Professional for Contributions to Southern Fandom. This year, Bain is offering two omnibus collections of James P. Hogan novels, Cyber Rogues, which came out in April and contains the novels The Two Faces of Tomorrow and Real-Time Interrupt, and Prisoners of Tomorrow, which is coming out next month and includes New York Times bestseller Endgame Enigma and the Prometheus Award winner Voyage from Yesteryear. 
This week in 1947, one of the most celebrated science fiction authors was born, multiple award winner Octavia E. Butler. She won her first Hugo Award for Best Short Story in 1984 for Speech Sounds, and in 1985 her novelette Blood Child won the Hugo Award, the Nebula Award, the Locus Award, and the Science Fiction Chronicle Reader Award. She won a second Science Fiction Chronicle Award for Best Novelette in 1988 for The Evening and the Morning and the Night. Her novel, The Parable of the Talents, won the Nebula Award in 2000. In 2005, she was inducted into Chicago State University's International Black Writers Hall of Fame, and in 2010, she was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. In 2012, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America honored her with the Solstice Award, reserved for individuals who had a significant impact on the science fiction or fantasy landscape. Finally, an author well known to Bain readers, and who has also contributed to this week's discussion topic, was born this week in 1950, fantasy author Mercedes Lackey. A prolific author, she has written over a hundred novels, including the 1990 Lambda Award winner, Magic's Price, and the 1991 winner of the Science Fiction Book Club's Book of the Year, The Elven Bane. She has also won five Pegasus Awards for Excellence in Filking, including the 1988 Pegasus Award for Best Writer-Composer, and been nominated for six more, many through collaboration with Leslie Fish. Bain has published a number of titles by Mercedes Lackey, most recently the 2014 novel Collision, Book 4 of the Secret World Chronicle, written with Veronica Giger, whose name I hope I pronounced correctly, Cody Martin, and Dennis Lee. She also has a story in the By Tooth and Claw anthology that came out earlier this year. And once again, speaking of Bain Books, we'd like to let you know about a couple of our July 2015 releases. In hardcover, we'll be releasing 1636, The Cardinal Virtues, by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt. This is the 19th book in the Ring of Fire series, which includes multiple New York Times bestsellers. In this novel, the cardinal of the title is France's infamous Cardinal Richelieu, who is determined to keep his grip on power no matter what history says. The citizens of Grantville, West Virginia, displaced in time as well as locality, must contend with factions inside and outside France whose intrigues will determine the future and fate of the kingdom. And coming next month in trade paperback, the latest entry in the Chicks in Chainmail series edited by Esther Friesner, Chicks and Balances. This anthology of all original stories features rollicking tongue-in-cheek tales of women warriors by Eric Flint, Harry Turtledove, Jody Lynn Nye, Wen Spencer, and many more, including Esther Friesner herself. Join these powerful, fearless women as fantasy adventure takes a turn for the lighter side. The chicks in chainmail are back, and they will not be oppressed, repressed, or depressed. 
Look for these titles at booksellers everywhere. We continue now our roundtable discussion with several science fiction and fantasy musicians in the Filk community. Perry Bruns, Blind Lemming Chiffon, Sally and Barry Childs Helton, Lizzie Crow and Eric Coleman, and Tom Smith. Okay, give us our cue and we'll pick up. I'll see what I can do. I get the impression that more people are doing original tunes today than in the early days. And some of you talked about that and, and how you know traditional tunes were used and parodies were written. And Tom, you mentioned how parodies are now being written to more modern tunes. And I guess my question is, is my impression correct? Or do parody tunes still sort of rule when it comes to filth? Parody tunes and, and original tunes are about uh, at parody, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> when I intend a pun, you'll know. Um, <laughs> yeah, you'll know. <laughs> oh, oh, you'll know, Alice, you'll know. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I was going to say, I, I end up doing like, like little one-verse parodies all the time online. Uh, sometimes they actually get blown up into full songs. Uh, the thing about a parody is that it's got to be suggested by something, okay? Usually something like a homonym where you hear a phrase that sounds like uh, another phrase. Uh, I found out about the song Shut Up and Dance With Me, and after a couple of days I, I realized that uh, I wanted to really do a parody of it, and, and uh, the best I could come up with was Shut Up, Hunt, Vamps With Me, so I wrote a Buffy song. Uh, par- parodies come fast and, and, and easy and sometimes you know dirt cheap, but... People also like doing original songs because that way they don't have to follow the structure of the existing song. Okay, sometimes that structure is really helpful. In my case, it's usually helpful when I want to get a uh, get a joke because it's like okay, the punchline has lent itself, uh, has suggested itself because of the song. Okay, now all I have to do is write the rest of the lyrics to get to the joke, and you know once you do that, then then it's all fine. Uh, but with original stuff, okay, it's much more difficult. <laughs> And yet, on the other hand, a lot more fun in some ways because it's like, okay, I'm not quite sure where this is going, and none of this is set in stone yet. Let's play with this and see what we come up with. You know, and I've rewritten songs from top to bottom sometimes, making them, you know, fit into what the song was trying to become. It's actually kind of like writing, uh, uh, you know, writing a story when you when you. Uh, you know, there are two kinds of ways you can write a story. You can write a story based on the plot or based on the characters, okay? And when you write a story on the plot, you have to make everything fit that plot. When you're writing something on the characters, you don't necessarily know where the hell it's going, but the characters tell you where it's going to go. And that usually, to me, seems to be a lot more interesting. And songwriting is a lot the same way. It's like, where are we going and how do we get there? And sometimes I've changed the destination because it's not, not what uh, it, you know, the song was fighting me trying to get to where I originally had in mind but where it turned out came out even better. If possible, I'd like to rope uh, Perry back into this because he reported that he's written about uh, five times more parodies than he has original songs. So, uh, Perry, what what is your take on the, the mix of parodies and originals and the differences in, in writing the two? Well, I think if you take an aggregate of what... Uh, Tom was saying, if you take an aggregate of all the filters out there, I think he's absolutely right that it's almost a 50-50 mix right now. I do about five times as many parodies as originals just because I got into music from the lyrical side. And I started out, as Tom mentioned, with Tom Lehrer, although 
I started out with a guy named Dick Benick playing Dr. Paul Bearer on Channel 44's Creature Feature on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> uh, lip-syncing Poisoning Pigeons in the Park and the Massacres of Tango for a little kid. And, um, and here, if I may break in just for a second, uh, this is Tom yeah. uh, po pointing out that the way the filk process works, okay, the way the parody process works, yeah, this, this guy's Dr. Paul Bearer. I'm thinking, oh, my Undertaker. Yeah, yeah first singing, Pringle, singing yeah. pigeons in the park with that voice. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. But, yeah, it, it's absolutely a stream of consciousness, divergence, you know, my digression, digressions. Um, but then from there, uh, my grandmother, long rest her soul, introduced me to Mad Magazine. <laughs> and Mad Magazine oh, yeah. had a lot of song parodies. That's where I got maybe Sun Tzu for the first time. And then, of course, Weird Al came after that in the early 80s. And um, I developed a healthy respect for good parody, where the song had to be about something. It couldn't just be, oh, I can make it go to this. There had to be some strong element of, of common knowledge, of common thought, common feeling that made the song work. Or, or for me, it wasn't funny. And, and most of my parodies are comedy. I'd say about 99.999%. Uh, I got into original songs about 2004, 2005. Uh, someone dared me to write a Calypso song. And I wrote this song called Hole in Space about a uh, freighter. The idea being that not every ship out there was a glamorous battle cruiser. That sometimes you just had these rusty hunks of junk that, that carted cargo from one place to another. And I thought, well, what if it were crewed by Jamaicans? One of it. And then the sequel, the sequel to that, um, same ship, different day, was uh, reggae. <laughs> yeah. All right. I used it for me. It was an evolution of the skills. Now I still write a ton of parody just because it's so much fun, and and quite frankly, it's a great way to make absolutely no money with a big initial investment. Um, <laughs> I'm just now learning how to do the musical side of it. I've, I've always been fascinated by composition, but scared of it at the same time. So I'm learning how to use tools to build music that I can sing along to, because I can't really accompany myself any other way yet. Well, I appreciate that. I think uh, right now would be a good time to, to play another song. And I actually thought about playing uh, one of Tom Smith's parody songs, because I thought about playing the 12 Days of Star Wars, because I just think that that's a lot of fun. Then I also thought about A Boy and His Frog, because that's one of your most famous songs. But I, I really ended up thinking that our audience would appreciate 307 Ale. So, Tom, can you give us a little intro for 307 Ale? license plate that said 307 ALE and I said that looks like a drink name <laughs> that's it that really is it <laughs> inspiration can come from anywhere I had a songwriting contest coming up for uh, for OVFF about writing your best drinking song and I did that one and uh, and it ended up tying uh, for, for winner with um, uh, with Michael Longcore's I can't party as hardy as I partied when I partied at 21 so <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, give a listen to 307 Ale, which also, uh, as I understand it, won the Pegasus Award for Best Food and Drink Song in uh, 2000. 
uh, it was tied actually with Debbie Ogie. Uh, what the heck was it? Was that Jalapeno, was that jalapeno Man? Well, I don't know, but it sounds good to me. I was going to say, and actually, I got to tell you a funny thing here. I got a certificate. They 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 got it wrong uh, on on the certificate. They they gave me at first. It said three o one ale. <laughs> they have the right certificate later, but but it's like I I, I treasure that. <laughs> I think I even wrote a verse of three o one ale somewhere. <laughs> that actually, if, if you don't mind me interrupting, as Perry again, it reminds me. Uh, recently, Tim Zahn, the science fiction author, went to a convention. And they gave him this wonderful plaque over his booth in the merch room. Thomas is on. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> There's many drinks you'll drink, my lads, on every world that's new. There's Saurian brandy, cran apple schnapps, and a good old Tullamore don't. There's Bush and Beck and Butt and Bach and others dark and pale. But I think you'll find the finest kind is 307 Ale. 307 Ale, me lads, 307 Ale. The finest drink that any bar has ever had for sale. It'll lay your whole damn world to waste. It'll make you fit and pale. There's nothing that you'll ever taste like 307 Ale, me lads, 307 Ale. It started down at MIT one lazy summer day When a couple of the frat boy techies started in to play They'd caught up on their schedule with a couple hours to kill So they fitted up their cyclotron and made themselves a still 307 Ale, me lads, 307 Ale The finest drink that any bar has ever had for sale It'll lay your whole damn world to waste, it'll make you fit and hail There's nothing Taste like 307 ale, me lads, 307 ale. They added choice ingredients to brew a little brew, but they didn't know the wires were crossed in chamber number two. A tiny bit of space got folded, things were looking queer. They turned the spout and then came out the world's first hyper beer. 307 ale, me lads, 307 ale. The finest drink that any bar has ever had for sale It'll lay your whole damn world to waste It'll make you fit and hail There's nothing that you'll ever taste Like 307 Ale, me lads, 307 Ale It bubbled and it burbled and it glowed a fizzly green And what it did to test equipment frankly was obscene It took a while to find a vial it would to flame, then they measured out its potency, and that's how it was named. There's many drinks you'll drink, the lads, but this one beats them all. 153 and one half percent alcohol, a beer brewed in a tesseract. It'll shoot you through the roof. And if you don't believe me, I've got lots and lots of proof. 307 Ale, me lads, 307 Ale. The finest drink that any bar has ever had for sale. It'll lay your whole damn world away. 
taste, it'll make you fit and hail. It sticks to your mouth like library paste with a stronger kick than toxic waste. Nothing that you'll never taste like 307 Ale. All right, well, thanks for letting us play 307 Ale, Tom. <laughs> good, good, good. Okay, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about the Filk community itself. And I'd like for y'all to talk about in terms of uh, is is the Filk community primarily, I think somebody mentioned this, the in-person interactions at conventions and house Filks? And is it different in some way qualitatively at filk conventions like consonants and others from general conventions? The filkers, we like warm hugs. Um, I think I can answer that a little bit. I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go for it, man. Oh, okay. Everybody um, there? I uh, staff a convention, as I mentioned, called Necronomicon, the uh, Stonehill Science Fiction Association's October convention. And um, we do have a filk Room we have open silk uh, usually once in on Saturdays and then Friday Saturday and uh, then the dead dog silk on Sunday and I do find that while we are a multi uh, fandom convention which is very unusual in Florida and uh, that we serve role playing games anime science fiction horror uh, authors TV movies and everything else. Um, it has been a struggle to keep Phil going down here, despite the fact that one of the secret mistresses of fandom who runs uh, Stonehill is also a Phil, the aforementioned Ed Morris. Um, it just seems like it's very hard to get people in the room and keep them in without chains, and uh, they've told me I can't do that anymore. Okay, uh, I'd like to speak to that for a moment, if I may. This is Barry. Um, cool. We've noticed a kind, a kind of um, a current that moves back and forth between ebb and flow in terms of the uh, position of Silk and uh, as a social event and as an event programming at conventions. Mm-hmm. Quite aside from the Silk um, conventions themselves, um, general science fiction conventions have a kind of niche that either expands or contracts depending on what seems to be the dominant aspect of science fiction and fantasy that particular year. I've been to conventions that have had pretty good silk tracks for several years running, and then suddenly it's all gaming, and then suddenly it's all movies, and then suddenly everybody is dressing up like the current summer blockbuster. So it's, there's a lot of ferment in this culture, but I think that the element of needing to have a, an arena for your personal creativity and a need to have that heard and reinforced and shared and also to give yourself a chance to hear what other people are doing and to support them for doing it. This is an essential underlying social dynamic that uh, I hope will never quite be lost, but there's always this tension between silk as a social activity that reinforces group dynamics and Silk as the taproot of what started as a cottage industry of tapes and then later on CDs, and essentially introduced an element of music consuming into that scene. So we became kind of a tiny pseudopod of the entertainment industry, 
And giving that person that immediate person-to-person support is also a really good gateway for making it easier for someone to step in and say, I've got something. A lot of times, uh, I, I think all of us have gotten out of the habit over the years of scanning the filk room to see if there's somebody who's being overlooked in the back, and then we can point to them and go oh, yeah. filter up and, and, and let them play through. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You, you haven't gone yet. I want to hear you sing, you know, and, and, and most people will then step up to that and go, okay. Well, well speaking of uh, hearing somebody sing, uh, why don't we take this opportunity to hear a song from Lizzie and Eric. In this case, uh, they sent us their uh, 2014 Best Filk Song Pegasus Award winner, Snow White Red Road. So, guys, how did this song come about? <laughs> That's your answer, love. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm good. Um, I had an interesting dream one night where I was looking onto the scene of Snow White ragged cape. She had thorny bits in her hair. She was holding the red apple. She looked at me in the dream and crooked a finger. At which point I woke up and said, Pen, Pen, now! <laughs> and, you know, started in on this idea of, you know, Snow White not being quite the nice girl. And then I, I went back to the original stories surrounding the folklore of Snow White, and I realized, wow, yeah, no, the, the queen did want her dead and didn't have much to do with her face either. Um, and so the, the song the, kind of sprang out of that. As I recall, the problem with the writing of that song actually was that you didn't have any paper at bedside, so you wrote it on Eric's back. <laughs> and it's tattooed there to this day. It is, it is. I'll show it to you if you... The pressure got heavy. See, it's a genuine culture. We've got our own legend. <laughs> and if we don't have one, we'll make them up. Five bucks, five bucks. <laughs> All right, well, let's give it a listen. Uh, for the coming is back, though. <laughs> <laughs> Cold, but the fairest one 
Okay, thanks, guys. I appreciate you letting us uh, play that song as part of the podcast. So we've been talking about the Filk community, and how healthy is the Filk community these days? Is it is it robust? Is it growing? Is it declining? <laughs> evolving. Ever-evolving. It, it continues to be, you know, the mirror of the people who are in it, and the people come in, the people go out. You have a much younger generation of songwriters that are coming in and bringing, you know, as Tom said, Tom and Barry both said, the genres of popular music into silk. And so it's really a reflection of who we are as a group. And it just continues to change, and it's fun to watch. Well, um, I, Eric like here. I'm a question. Oh. Yeah. Go ahead, Eric. Um, just, just real quick, I'm... I'm reminded of an interview with Pete Seeger about 10 years ago, and somebody asked him, what happened to all the folk festivals? He says, well, there are now blues festivals and gospel festivals and, and, and bluegrass festivals because there's all kinds of folk. Mm-hmm. And I think Spanish music is doing a lot of the same thing in that you've got folk, which is you know folk music. You've got 
wizard rock, you've got nerdcore, you've got dementia music. There's a whole bunch of subgenres that have kind of gone off in their own way, but they're still part of fandom. So it's still fanish music. It may not even be classifiable as folk anymore, but it's definitely from that. And and it it continues to be really strong. It just the form changes because the people who are playing it, you know, as someone said earlier, you know, grew up with different genres and different feels of music, and so their approach is different. You know, uh, Lusky is a rapper, and so you know he grew up loving rap music, and so he wrote funny rap songs. It's it's still Spanish music still there. It's just in a lot of different directions. Eric, I'd like to add on to this. This is Sally. Uh, one of the yeah. things I'm really interested in is talking about the health of the built community is also, you know, we've been talking about a lot of face-to-face in the filk room interaction, but there's an awful lot going on in the filk world that's online now. So lots of listservs, Facebook pages, lots of um, YouTube videos, concerts online, things like that. Intercontinental so, collaborations. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yep. Yep. So so how how do you folks feel about the built community moving into this online space and how might that online space help reinforce the face-to-face com- communities? Um, Eric here, we, we live in a little bit of a kind of a splendid isolation in that we're in central Iowa and there's a, there's a small filk community here based around fandom, but there's not really any other people who play out the way we do and go to the conventions the way that we do. There, there are people who go to the local cons. There's a really good Renfair band who play around the area, but never get out of really central Iowa and, and the immediate area. And so being online and, and being on Bandcamp, Bandcamp is, is a wonderful way for people to hear your music. And YouTube, we've got live videos and everything else. It has really made it easy for, for us to get our stuff out there, but then also to go and see our friends play who we don't get to see very often because it's more and more, it's just all out there and it's, and it's all available as long as you want it to be. And, 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 and a lot of, you know, I mean, we are nerds. And so we go, Oh, technology. We love technology. We don't <laughs> use technology. And, concert and, window. And, and oh, concert, concert window. window. Yeah. We, we're going to do one later in the year. We just haven't had time to do it yet. Um, you know, I've I've seen some dear friends of mine out on the West Coast who I I, I never get to see. It's like, okay, they're going to be online here in 15 minutes. So let's everybody get on the couch, let's pull up the laptop and sit and watch a concert. Um, it's it's a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous thing. So I think another there. Yeah. Oh, um, I wanted to add one more thing, if I might. This is Barry. Uh, that's that's uh, the. Uh, musical instruments are kind of circling back around and picking up on older styles and reintroducing them in new garb. I'm thinking in particular of Blind uh, Lemming Chiffon's use of the ukulele mm-hmm. and the use of ukulele in a lot of uh, um, conventions that I've seen that uh, encourages people to branch out and pick up this instrument and do things with it that some of us have just not seen out there in years. And when it comes back in this shape, it is so much um, 
so much refreshed and uh, reinvigorated. Let, let me, how did you well, get uh, started on putting the ukulele in the silk room? Well, you know, I mean, that's the only one with the ukulele. But there's a huge ukulele movement that, to me, it, it's a very parallel thing to, to silk in my life in that there are gatherings and there are people communicating online and I have a lot of ukulele Facebook friends. It's 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 very much a community in the same way that Silk is a community. Hmm. Well, wow. well, that actually, if I could interject, since we're talking to uh, Blind Lemming with respect to his introduction of the ukulele and, and popularizing it within the Filk community, this is a good time to hear the song that he contributed to the podcast. Blind Lemming, you sent us Mister Peabody's Lament. Tell us a little bit about this song. I need to do with this song is give Tom my apologies. I have appropriated one of his tunes. Mm-hmm. Tom, Tom Smith, I'm sorry. No, no you're I'm, not. Just, I'm just I'm just sitting over here and making another notch on the list. <laughs> I, I should mention that my my approach to parody is very different from a lot of other people in that my parody is more of a tribute or out of respect to the music that I'm appropriating as opposed to satirizing or making fun of. And He's telling it's a very different that. thing. A lot of my parodies are actually serious songs as opposed to funny songs. This is kind of, although it has its humorous moments, this is kind of one of those serious parodies. And it's a really very nice song, as is the tune that you borrowed. dog, so they tell me, and what if I am, even so, some anthropomorphic old second banana from the rocky and Winkle show, they say, I'm just a history teacher who could never resist a bad pun where's the moose they all cry yet they're wondering why they all know something new when I'm done You'll stay tuned, I have something to teach you You'll learn it in spite of yourself Those dusty old books, they're the worst way to reach you You just leave them up on your shelf But history's made up like us and it's something we all can enjoy with a wayward preteen 
in a way back machine me and Sherman a dog machine has been broken for decades out rusting in somebody's barn I'm surprised no one's tried yet to sell it on eBay if they do the thing's broken be warned The places we saw and the people we met Galileo Da Vinci Voltaire I've searched all through this world the internet too But no one today can compare It's been 35 years since our last trip together Back sometime around 66 Now I, I hear you're all grown A life of your own And me Well, I haven't learned any new tricks But you see I'm a dream And dreams live forever Not like a cartoon or a toy the things that we did I miss you kid me and Sherman a dog and his boy That was Blind Lemming Chiffon with Mr. Peabody's Lament. To wrap up our discussion, I would like to remind our listeners that the uh, Pegasus Awards for Excellence in Filking are in the nomination phase. And to invite each of you uh, to say whether, you know, were any, were you or any of your songs mentioned in the brainstorming phase for this year's Pegasus Awards? I was mentioned, and one of my songs was mentioned, and I do not expect to be nominated. I've been mentioned, I don't know, dozens of times, and my music is kind of in its own little niche, and I'm honored by even being mentioned, and that's all I have to say about it. You deserve more recognition than that, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Eric here. Um, we got a mention for one of our songs for best song 
and um, for songwriter as both a band and Lizzie and I separately, which kind of boggles my mind. Yay! And considering the sheer volume of songwriters that are out there, I'm conjuring a snowball and Mephistopheles. <laughs> <laughs> Friends call me good miser. Whenever, whatever I touch starts to melt in my clutch. I'm too much. Sorry. You're not sorry. You're not sorry at all. I'm not sorry at all. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 we pull I, each other's legs so much that we're all long-legged beasts. Yeah, I was going to say, if only. I'm still five foot eight. What's up with that? <laughs> You're a wonder well, dog, Mary. You're a giraffe. Well, I, I will just remind our listeners that uh, if they want to learn about the, the Pegasus Awards and see who has been uh, suggested in the brainstorming poll, that information is online. And that is a good segue to give each of you an opportunity to tell our listeners where they can look online to find more information about you and about your music. So let's start with Perry. Where can uh, folks find you and your music online? Um, right now, I unfortunately have not recorded anything yet, except for a live play that we did three years running in Necronomicon called Tales of Demonicus. Uh, that's available at stonehill.org. Uh, I can be found on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Brunsworks. On Bandcamp, even though there's nothing there yet, at brunsworks.bandcamp.com, I promise I am going to record some stuff, and hopefully by the end of this year I will have it up. I also do some voice work, so you can find me at voice123.com to search on Bruns, and eventually I'll pop up. And I think that's about it for now. Oh, and my website is in progress at brunsworks.com. It's pretty ugly right now, but eventually there'll be stuff there. All right, Blind Lemming, where can folks find you online? Well, I have a website, which is not very well maintained, but that's my fault. And it's at blindlemmingchiffon.net. And then you can also find my music or representations of what seems like my music here and there on YouTube, posted by people in varying quality. There is an entire about an hour-long concert posted in three parts where I was at a ukulele festival in 2013, and it's, of course, me playing a bunch of different songs on the ukulele, which, hey, I'm a filker, so it's filk, right? <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, Sally and Barry? that we've been with since 2002, Well, Mercy, has uh, tracks from all of our three CDs uh, available on CD Baby. And, uh, and Allie and I... Wildmercy.com. Pretty easy. So that's, that's where Barry, we are most, most recently. And, and Barry is very, very close to releasing um, a new so- solo album, and I'll let him speak to that. Okay, that's uh, coming together with Dragon Scale Records here in Indianapolis, and we're planning to release it at uh, OVFF this coming fall. All the summers behind you. <laughs> All right, very nice. Playing 
this summer. So, you know, all of this stuff just keeps going. All right. Lizzie and Eric? Um, my solo stuff, which I don't really do anymore, but a lot of people probably do it, can be found at ericcoleman.bandcamp.com. It's free downloads for all four of my records. Um, just like to get that out there. Uh, my old band, Toy Boat, is toyboatband.com. Go buy their stuff. They've got a CD. And Lizzie, yeah, our stuff. Um, our stuff is on uh, CheshireMoon.net. You can go listen to it, um, CheshireMoon.BandCamp.com. You can go listen to everything. You can buy stuff if you still choose. Um, but um, if I may plug just gently, we do have a $5 CD currently where all the proceeds go to Interfilk. So if you want a chance to support the Filk community, um, go download that. It is pay what you want, and all the proceeds for that go straight back into the Filk community. So a preemptive thank you. Excellent. And Tom? Um, before I say anything, I have to uh, point out that we haven't really discussed Interfilk. I'll just briefly say it's a fund that uh, allows people, uh, it, it allows up-and-coming uh, musicians to be brought to conventions where they normally couldn't get to. They, they get people from all over the country coming out to OVFF or send them out to the West Coast or whatever it may be. You know, uh, So that's, that's a good thing. We have charity auctions for that at most Philcons, and the idea is getting uh, getting deserving people more exposure. So that's, that's a really good thing. Um, my stuff, uh, you can find it at tomsmithonline.com. Uh, I'm actually in the process of overhauling the site completely, uh, and it's going to be reborn as filtertom.com, I hope before Labor Day. Um, there's also tomsmith.bandcamp.com, uh, where I've got about 20 albums and about uh, 10 or 12 live shows and, and uh and you know, lots of lots of cheap downloads there. Uh, I'm all over YouTube. If you if, if you look anywhere online, but especially on on uh, Facebook and YouTube, if you look for Filker Tom, you will find me. Sounds great. Right there. For our listeners, I will add that uh, if you have any questions about Filk or suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please send an email to info at bain dot com and put podcast suggestions in the subject line because we would love to have your feedback and make sure that we are serving your needs well thanks again everybody appreciate you being on the show thank you and now here is part three of the complete audiobook serialization of john ringo's under a graveyard sky as read by Tristan Morris. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided, as always, by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free when you try Audible free for 30 days. Under a Graveyard Sky is the first volume of the Black Tide Rising series by John Ringo. When an airborne zombie plague is released, bringing civilization to a grinding halt, the Smith family, Stephen, Stacy, Sophia, and Faith, take to the high seas to avoid the chaos, but even the wide open spaces of the Atlantic Ocean don't provide a safe haven from the anarchy of infected humanity. It is up to the Smiths and a small band of Marines to somehow create a refuge in a world of darkness and terror. With every continent a holocaust and every ship an abattoir, 
They must fight to survive under a graveyard sky. Here is Tristan Morris with part three of the complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Chapter 3 Is the boat going to be able to hold all this? Faith asked. And how are we getting it there? Pushing? When you've basically bought a Costco out of toilet paper and feminine hygiene products, these were reasonable questions, if poorly timed. We can strap some to the roof of the Nissan, Stacy said, looking around the pile of toilet paper on the pallet. She certainly couldn't see over it. They'd gotten some very odd looks, but no serious questions. Stocking up for hurricane season was the simplest answer, and it wasn't like anyone in Williamsburg knew who they were. She grimaced in annoyance when her phone rang, but it was Tom's burn phone number. Tom, Stacy said. Hang on a second. We're walking across the parking lot. Roger, Tom asked. What's your status? Nominal so far, Stacy said. King opened the doors. Inside for the check, girls. Public places are to be avoided, Tom pointed out. Toilet paper is a right, not a privilege, Stacy said, getting in the car and putting the phone on speaker. Okay, we're all in. Go. Everybody there? Tom asked over the speakerphone. Stave's negotiating the boat, Stacy said. Go. Tom covered the highlights, such as they were, of Dr. Curry's analysis. Naked zombies? Faith said. Gross. Makes sense to me, Stacy said. If they kept their clothes on and are still alive, they'd have difficulty with waste passage. That means they couldn't shit, Faith, Sophia said. I know what it means, Faith said. Yuck again. Short time here, Tom said seriously. End of the world stuff. Sorry, Uncle Tom, Sophia said. Just as seriously. We're just having a hard time. Go, Tom, Stacy said. Increasing in coherency to an essentially animal state. In that state, hyperaggression. Maybe just the cases so far identified, but aggression seems to be increased. Very bitey from the reports from the West Coast, which also spreads because of the blood pathogen effect. At least one cop who dealt with a case is infected. Six confirmed cases on the East Coast, four in Asia, confirmed. CDC has decided to go public at noon. News media is already asking questions. They're looking at a vaccine. Go. Any pre-symptoms notable other than flu-like? Sophia asked. Nothing particular, Tom said. Not until second stage. May not be blood pathogen until then. General flu prevention procedures, which is what the powers at B are going to be calling for. Swine flu again, but this is already spread probably worldwide, and spreading fast. Stand by. Pasteur confirms cases in England and France. Six now in Hong Kong alone. I need to cut this short. I've got another meeting. We're using the Aurelius Corporation plan, Stacy said. Can you do something about it? We'd prefer to avoid actually stealing the yacht. How much? Tom asked. 140, Stacy said with a wince. Done, Tom said. I'll authorize the transfer as soon as we're off the phone. What's the cover name? Jason Ranseld. R-A-N-S-E-L-D. 
I'll take care of it. Just get offshore. How is your jump plan? Stacy asked. If they come up with a vaccine, nominal, Tom said. If they don't, you don't want me infecting you. Out here. Steve waved to bemused-looking Felix as the wind carried the boat away from the dock. He could tell that the broker was wondering if he'd somehow been taken. It certainly would hold for a couple of weeks, by which time this would either be a false alarm and the Smiths, one and all, would have to start their lives over, probably in Australia, or the world would be so clearly headed to hell in a handbasket that nobody would care. Jason Ransild had some very interesting papers indeed. Among others was a mate's license. It wasn't forged. Steve had gotten it while he was living the Jason Ranseld life many years agone. So he had some experience working with boats this big. In wind, even. Twenty years agone. He thus managed to maneuver out of the marina without major incident. What he hadn't thought to bring was a coat. And it was bloody chilly. The clouds were high, thin and rippled in a regular humped pattern and the sun shone through them, weak and gray. There was a name for that type of cloud formation, but Steve couldn't quite recall it. He was worried about Stacy and the girls. Against direct threats, they could take care of themselves. But a plague. There just wasn't any way to truly prevent it, absent quarantine gear, and it was in the general population. He looked up at the scudding clouds and still couldn't remember the official name for the formation but he remembered the day he'd asked his grandfather Smith about them. Gran had been a veteran of World War II, starting from his days as a militiaman in New Guinea, and always knew everything. Gran had looked up, said it was called a graveyard sky, then walked back in the house and had gotten very drunk. Come on, honey, Stacy said. Where are you? It was a nice neighborhood despite their relatively low occupancy. The housing downturn in the Virginia area had tended to impact high-end homes more than lower-end, and it was a very nice neighborhood, which was why the beat-up Nissan Pathfinder with something piled on top under a tarp was getting a lot of looks from the remaining residents. Before long, she'd have to explain their presence to the police, and since there wasn't a good explanation... Jail? Faith said. I don't need that right now, Faith, Stacy said. She didn't want to call Steve in case there were problems. He didn't need her nagging. Besides, the check is good, sort of. Have a little faith, sis, Sophia said. Oh, that's so wise, Faith spat back. Stacy started as her phone rang. She checked, and it was Steve, which could be good or bad. Tell me you're not in jail, Stacy said. Inbound to the rendezvous. Steve said. Glad you got that payday loan from Tom. The seller wasn't impressed by lots of important-looking paperwork. I think he's still wondering about the wire transfer, which, as I understand it, we'd better be able to cover, or things have to go to hell in a handbasket quick, Stacy replied, putting the idling car in drive and creeping forward. Any problems in your end? Just keeping the toilet paper on top of the car. Okay, see what you mean, Steve said, chuckling. The house was about 10,000 square feet, and right on the navigable creek that would meet most areas' definition of river. And it included a very nice tea dock, with enough room to tie up, say, a 45-foot hunter sailboat named Mile 7. 
There was even a convenient drive to bring a car around to the end of the dock, which Stacy was, cautiously, doing as the girls ran down to the dock. The reason for the caution was apparent by the cargo. Stacy was, in Steve's opinion, an unrecognized mechanical and electrical genius. On the other hand, he had a tendency to hit other people's thumbs with a hammer. That being said, as a former para, he always handled packing, especially if it involved anything torqued onto the roof of the Pathfinder. Stacy had apparently gotten two of the spare tarps from the trolley and done something with a great deal of twine and far too much paracord. He'd seen some smaller cars more overburdened in the stands. However, those drivers had a bit more understanding of things like aerodynamics and load shifting. The tarp looked a bit like a wind-battered green and brown potato. I can't remember how the knot goes, Faith said, pulling the stern line in and then bracing as the boat started to head out to sea again. Help? I've got it, Sophia said. She'd already secured the foreline. Between them, they got the stern of the boat alongside, and the older sister quickly had it secured with a double hitch. It's simple. Simple is a shotgun and a zombie, Faith said. Quit arguing and start unloading, Steve said, shutting down the boat. We're on short time. Shaking it for all we're worth, Captain, sir, Sophia said, saluting sarcastically. That's more like it, Steve said. Besides the massive material, the main problem was first in was also first in. That is, just as the trailer had had to be packed with the heaviest items on the bottom and forward, the boat had to be packed with the heaviest items first, which required unloading the entire trailer before they could get started unloading the boat. They had just gotten the trailer completely unloaded when the visit Steve was dreading occurred. Dad, Sophia said, glancing around the trailer. Cop. Roger, Steve said. Start the load. Can I ask you what you're doing, sir? Officer Jason Young. Williamsburg PD asked. The morning shift had started slow. A couple of kids speeding, a couple of burglary reports from Friday night, the usual. Things seemed to be picking up, though. He just heard two separate 1064 indecent exposure calls, then a 1064-1028 fighter disturbance. Whatever. Things were picking up, and here he was dealing with... Well, he wasn't sure what he was dealing with. The call had been 1037, Suspicious person. The people just seemed to be loading a boat. But according to the neighbor who had called it in, the house connected to the dock was in foreclosure, and nobody was supposed to be using the property. And the car, with badly secured materials on the roof, had been hanging around the neighborhood for nearly an hour. Loading my boat, Officer Young, Steve said. This is private property, and according to the neighbors, not your property, Young said. Which means you are trespassing, sir. A valid position, Officer Young, Steve said. The dock was convenient, and the property is clearly not being used. It was, at best, a minor transgression, and will be gone within the hour. Mind if I see some ID, sir? Young asked. You're not American. Irish? Australian, Steve said, pulling out his driver's license and trying not to wince. Americans could never sort out Commonwealth accents. And I'm a naturalized American citizen, not a resident. I have a passport, American as well. Says here you live in Warrentown, 
Young said, which matched the plates on the Nissan. Yes, officer, Steve said politely. The address is correct. Mind if I see your registration and proof of insurance? Young asked. Of course, Steve said, turning around. Before you open the car, Young said, are there any weapons in the vehicle? Ah, Steve said, turning back to face the officer. I was wondering when we'd get to that part. Yes, as a matter of fact, they are all locked in cases in the rear. My wife and I also have CCLs, but we are not at this point carrying. Okay, Young said, his brow furrowing. All? There are quite a few, Steve said. Would you like to see? They're rather buried still. We were loading from the trolley first. Trolley? Sorry, Steve said, too calmly. Trailer. Young looked at the ladies continuing to load the boat. They didn't look as if they were preparing for a trip to the Caribbean. They looked nervous. And this cat was just too calm. Don't open the vehicle, Young said. Please do not approach the vehicle. I need to talk to the ladies. Steve started to open his mouth to ask why, then just nodded. As you prefer, officer. Officer, sorry about this, Stacy said as the cop walked over. I know we're sort of trespassing, but the house is empty. It looks like it's in foreclosure. And it was so convenient to load. I'm really sorry, but we won't be long. She didn't do bimbo well, but she was going to give it her best shot. There are marinas for that sort of thing, ma'am, the officer said. Everything else okay? Yes, she asked, looking past the cop to Steve and trying to catch a clue. What do you mean? Are you under any form of duress? The officer asked. I mean, is this your idea? Are you okay, ma'am? I'm fine, Stacy said, frowning. We're fine. We just want to get loaded and off to sea. And you are married to Mr... Sorry, what was the name again? He asked, glancing at Steve's license. Oh, Stacy said, laughing. You mean Stephen John Smith, my husband of 17 years? Would you like to meet our two children, Sophia Lynn and Faith Marie? Yes, he's my husband, these are our children, and we're all real people. May I see some identification, ma'am? The officer asked. It's in my purse in the car. Which I'd like to hold off opening until I've examined the weapons inside, the officer said. You're in for a treat, then, Faith said, stopping. What's this about? Just keep loading, Faith, Stacy said. What? Faith said. While you and Da stand around talking to the cop? Just keep loading, Faith, Stacy said evenly. What's the rush? The officer said. Trying to make the tide, officer, Stacy said. She knew immediately she'd said something wrong. The outgoing tide? The officer asked, suspiciously. Any cop on the coast knows the tides, and the tide was currently inbound and would be for 12 hours. Can I see the registration for the boat, please, ma'am? I'll have to ask Steve where it's at, Stacy said. I'd appreciate it if you'd stop loading until I can get this cleared up, ma'am, the officer said. Of course, officer, if you insist, Stacy said, trying not to curse. Okay, Faith, Soph, you can knock off. About time for a break, Faith said. Problems, officer? Steve asked as Young walked back to him. I'm trying to figure that out, Young said. There's enough material here for an army. You've certainly got enough guns for one. 
You're trespassing on private property, and you're in a hurry. And not, as your wife said, to make the tide. On the other hand, you don't look like a drug gang, and the material doesn't look stolen. Nothing adds up. Call me suspicious. The dock is convenient to load on, Steve said. Much more than a marina. How long have you had the boat? Young asked. Just bought it, Steve said. This morning. Why a transfer from my brother's corporation? Okay, Mr. Smith, Young said angrily. Cut the crap. What the hell is going on, really? Mind if I pull up my cell? Steve said carefully. Why? I'd like to check the time, Steve said. Or you can give it to me. Why? Young asked. I need to know what time it is, Steve said calmly. Young stepped back and carefully, keeping half an eye on the man and group of women, checked his watch. 11.47, Young said. Long day, Steve said ruefully. I hadn't realized it was that early. Can I wait 13 minutes to answer that question? What happens at noon, Young asked, his eyes narrowing. An announcement, Steve said. Probably a carefully worded one which will not give you enough information to protect yourself or your fellow officers. If we can continue loading until noon, and there is such an announcement, I can then give you more information, information which may keep you alive, but I'm constrained not to until then. I will give you one piece of information. If you find yourself sometime in the next few days dealing with an incoherent naked person who is acting in a violent manner, my suggestion is to shoot him or her dead if necessary and avoid the blood splatter. That way, you'll be placed on administrative leave pending the shoot investigation, and that will significantly increase your chances of survival. Young stopped and thought about that. Guns, supplies, sailboat, in a hurry. You're joking, Young said. That's impossible. Noon, Steve said. At least I was told there'd be an initial announcement at noon. Young's radio beeped urgently, and he held it up to his ear. 1027, 1027, multiple hostile, three. There was a series of shots, then the call cut off. 1027, 413, Elmshore Road. 1027, 413, Elmshore Road. Break, break. 1027, 7276 Watterson Avenue. 1027, You need to go, Officer Young, Steve said. Do not let them bite you under any circumstance. The blood pathogen is particularly potent. You have got to be kidding me, Young said. Officers in trouble, Steve said, thumbing at the cop's car. And good luck. That was part three of the complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo, read by Tristan Morris. That's it for this installment of the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to Perry Bruns, Blind Lemming Chiffon, Sally and Barry Childs Helton, Lizzie Crow and Eric Coleman, and Tom Smith. I'm Gray Reinhardt, contributing editor for Bain Books, and it's been my pleasure to be your host for this episode of the podcast. 
Please join us next time for the Bain Free Radio Hour, where the heart of science fiction and fantasy beats strong.